Welcome to Beyond the Seminar. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering here at UC Davis, and each week I sit down to have a conversation with a real-life scientist visiting our department's seminar series. Today I'm joined by Dr. Carlos Rinaldi Ramos, the Dean's Leadership Professor and Chair of the Chemical Engineering Department at the University of Florida, as well as a member of the University of Florida Biomedical Engineering Department. His lab is internationally recognized as leaders in the synthesis and application of magnetic nanoparticles. They've also made huge advancements in nanomedicine. More recently, they've pioneered the development of magnetic nanoparticles as imaging probes for a new modality called magnetic particle imaging, or MPI. Here's our conversation. is magnetic particle imaging? Yeah, so it's, um, it is a new uh, biomedical imaging modality that where signal arises solely from the nonlinear magnetization response of exogenous iron oxide particles so that there's no signal from the body, from the tissue, there's no signal attenuation from the tissue, and only particles of specific sizes will be able to generate a sufficient signal. And so it's, uh, it's exciting because it's, first of all, I, for me as a nanotechnologist, someone who's been in nano for a long time, it's the only imaging modality that I'm aware of where signal arises solely from the behavior of a nanoparticle. And I think that's cool, right? Um, I think it's also exciting because of the potential, right, where you could do quantitative non-invasive um, imaging with high sensitivity without the use of radioactive tracers or, or ionizing radiation. And, and so that's what MPI is. It's one of the newer techniques. A lot of the imaging techniques that we're all familiar with, PET and CT and MRI, were last cent so last century. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is one of the, if, if the only new one that has emerged in the, in yeah. the, in the past I think since in MRI. history. Wow. I think since MRI. Um, That's a funny thing. I mean, I remember in one of our early papers, we, we wrote that MPI was an emerging technique, emerging, you know, imaging modality. One of the reviewers actually came back and said, oh, you know, it was developed in 2005. So it's not that new. <laughs> well, you know, the, it depends on the timescales you're comparing to, right? If you think about techniques like MRI, I think that was 1970s. CT, I think was 1950s, I want to say. So, so no, it is, it is emerging <laughs> Yeah, certainly. compared to all these other things. Is it, um, I know most of the work that, that, and that we'll talk about is in animal models, but has it been applied to humans yet? Um, there are, I think there was, um, not a paper, but a, like a presentation at the international workshop on NPI of a clinical scale scanner, uh, developed by Bruker Phillips. Um, there is a uh, work being done by Larry Wald to develop a clinical scale head scanner. He's trying to develop this for something called functional MPI, similar to functional MRI, where you could image, um, detect differences in blood flow volume to different regions in the brain. Uh, there was a paper from a group in Germany with a clinical scale head scanner. Now, all of this has been with phantoms, not yet in a human. And so I, I'm, I, I know that Magnetic Insight has funding to develop a clinical scanner and 
from what I've heard, their plan is to go do first in human in the next three years. Wow. So, so it's coming. Um, it has challenges, but it's coming. What are some of the challenges? The, 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 the scanners, the hardware, um, basically from what I've been told, it's, um, it's expensive to generate these, um, coils. That's where the other challenge tracers that are optimized can be, if we can overcome that challenge, we can sort of kill two birds with one stone because if, if you're able to develop tracers that allow for greater resolution, what would happen is that instead of, you know, we could push the envelope and try to get micron resolution in a preclinical system, but what would most likely happen is that the, we would develop clinical scanners with the same resolution, millimeter resolution, but they would require much smaller magnetic field gradients. And that is, um, is much easier to do, to scale up. Um, another challenge that I've that I, that's come that I've recently been aware of and you know was reported recently is um, peripheral nerve stimulation, right? And so a concern is at the frequencies and amplitudes that we're using to excite, you could get peripheral nerve sti um, stimulation, and and so that that's another thing that we need better understanding, and and that's going to impact um, development of, of clinical scanners. Yeah, for, for those who may not know, um, magnetic nanoparticles are one of the hallmarks of, of nanotechnology, Th these concepts that bulk materials behave different. Uh, once you start to shrink them down to the nanoscale, they get these new properties that, that we just don't have on, on the macro scale, um, or maybe we have, but that are, that are analogous like magnets. Um, so the idea of, of, of your imaging approach is to basically inject these really special magnetic nanoparticles into the bloodstream. They localize to a tumor, for example. You generate these magnetic fields to, to, to localize them and image yeah. them. And you can, you can do very high resolution imaging, very low background. So um, your group has done a lot of work in uh, developing the particles themselves. Um, but iron oxide is basically rust for those people who don't know. So what's so special about these? Yeah, um, they're not all, so not all iron oxide nanoparticles are created equal, sometimes I like to say. Um, MPI, because it depends on the dynamic response of the particle to a field of a certain frequency and amplitude, and, and, and you want that response to be fast, so that you don't get significant lag, which can blur your image, it, it poses some um, challenges to the particle, right? So in, in an application like magnetic separation, almost any particle is as good as the other, because ultimately, if they saturate, you know, in the field, you just might have to add more particles and to, to get separation to work. In an application like M MPI, um, the size of the particle matters significantly. The strength of the dipole of the individual particles matters because that's going to determine... Basically, signal is generated because the dipole flips from one direction to another. And um, the strength of that, of that signal is going to depend on the magnitude of the saturation on each side, right? Going from negative, um, the negative direction to the positive direction and also how fast it flips. The magnitude depends on the so-called saturation, magnetization of the particle, but how fast it flips depends on the slope of that curve. And so larger, more magnetic particles tend to be better. 
but then when you make larger particles, you run into challenges with getting high phase purity and and uh, you get defects that influence that behavior. So that's been, I think that's an interesting challenge for the field. And it's something that only recently, I would say in the last seven years or so, people have started to understand and, and have developed methods to overcome these challenges. Yeah, your group in particular has really innovated a lot of synthetic methods to make these large, beautiful, single crystal particles that are for this task. And in your talk, you showed, uh, I think a lot of the push is to is something really tangible, which is to get the maximum resolution and in applications where you're detecting cells to try to detect a smaller amount of cells. So, you know, when are you, when are you guys going to be satisfied? What's the ultimate goal? <laughs> so how we, far can you push it? Right. Um, so we have, we've done theoretical work, um, simulation work that suggests that for, first of all, let me, let me first recognize that there's been work by others, right? And so Kanan Krishnan did a lot of work to try to optimize particles for MPI and, and they still have the record for the most sensitive or mo better resolution particles. And these are 25 nanometer iron oxide. Um, whether you can, if you could make a 30 nanometer iron oxide particle that still doesn't have significant relaxation, then that would be better. That would probably drop the resolution from about 800 microns in the case of Kanan's work to half a micron. Sorry, from 800 microns to 500 microns, right? Or, or even less. But we also think that um, other compositions can allow us to go even larger than that and therefore would have better resolution. The, the other thing in terms of how are we going to be satisfied, um, I, I think that's a question that I ask the people who develop the hardware, to be honest, right? Um, and so I've been told below six millitesla for the full width at half maximum, um, below three millitesla would be phenomenal. That's hard to give you. That's based on the technical constraints or yeah, this it, idea it's, of it's, uh, it's, peripheral it's, excitation? And... It's based on the technical constraints of generating the gradient field and, and target resolutions in humans, right? And so um, to illustrate how hard that is, the, the ferrocarbitran is about 12 millitesla, right? And so, and the best performing particle that's been reported is about six millitesla. Now, it turns out that you can also get there by leveraging new physics. And so we, we recently published a paper with Steve Connolly at UC Berkeley, where we show that in, first of all, in MPI, the assumption is that the particles don't interact. So the particles are isolated. But we actually discovered that when you have strongly interacting particles, if you can modulate those interactions, if the particles form chains, you can get one millitesla resolution. So I told you the best would be three and, and we have work, we have data and paper, a paper that shows, I think that paper was 1.5 millitesla. Um, and so that translates at a seven Tesla per meter gradient that translates to about 150 micron, if I remember correctly. But on the other hand, it translates to using 1.5 Tesla per meter to generate one millimeter resolution. Um, and, and so that would mean a much cheaper to build clinical scanner. And so, so we're there with that 
new technology now that has its own challenges itself um, in terms of how to generate the signal and and the and the and the image and and Connolly is certainly leading the the field in that. So 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 that, so yeah, that, that would be great. Now being able to do that with non-interacting particles would be phenomenal because then every you know it could be done in the scanners that are already out there. So. It, when you're developing a new imaging technology like this, are, are you constantly comparing it to those established, you know, it's better than MRI in this way or that way, or uh, just trying to beat yourself on the own imaging capability? Yeah, I mean, let me just say that, um, yes, so the answer is yes. Um, and I'm not, I'm, my lab has not developed MPI itself. We develop tracers and we are trying to understand the physics. I am new to imaging. And so, yeah, definitely it's been a, a steep learning curve of, of trying to, to understand what are the advantages and disadvantages. And it's always difficult, obviously, especially for new technology, because you have a lot of established experts and, and you know, rightly so, people are skeptical, right? Scientists were trained to be skeptical. And so certainly in the first proposals and papers, um, we had to refine our arguments and really understand, and I'm still learning about this, what are the pros and cons of the various imaging modalities. So I, I like the idea that it's all part of a toolbox um, that I learned from Sam Ganbir's papers on the immunoimaging toolbox. I, I think that disease, human disease, cancer are such, are so difficult, so complex that we are better, better served with as broad a toolbox as possible. No imaging modality is going to be perfect for everything. And so I, I think it's a matter of acknowledging strengths and weaknesses of the various modalities and, and a scientist recognizing those and, and seeing that there's value in developing and having multiple approaches to do things. Yeah, could be additive, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Complementary, um, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's go back to your to your origins. Where are you yeah. from? I am from Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico is an island in the Caribbean. It is a territory of the United States. Um, before that, it was a colony of Spain. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful island, tropical island with beautiful beaches and and rainforests and and it's a, it's really great. I, I I miss it very much. Was science always in the picture for you? When did that start to happen? Oh, wow. That's a good question. So yeah, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I grew up in Fajardo, which is a beach town. Um, science fiction was always in the picture. <laughs> I know it sounds cliche for my generation, but Star Wars, right? Um, and for me, the scene where Luke in, in Empire Strikes Back gets his uh, artificial hand, but it wasn't the idea that we could make a prosthesis what really caught my attention was the idea that we could have a machine nerve interface so that not only do you have an artificial hand, but you can feel through it. That's actually was in my, um, I think graduate school application essay. <laughs> cool. But yeah, that was it for me. And so I actually, um, my dad is an engineer, but the work that he did was manufacturing and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to do, to develop new things. And I started out as a mechanical engineer. My family couldn't afford to send me to the U.S. to school. And so I, I went to University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, 
I was the third generation Carlos Rinaldi going to University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. And um, no, I loved it. It was a great place. And I started as a mechanical engineer, um, but then met a professor by the name of Carlos Ramirez, who was in chemical engineering, as was working on an artificial pancreas. And that just blew my mind. And so he convinced me uh, that the, the body's a chemical machine. <laughs> Yeah, and this is what we do, right? We all want to claim that the things are, are belong to our discipline. But yeah, I changed to chemi, and and that's that's how it how I got started. Um, so you came to the states for graduate school after that. Yeah. Um, you know, did you? You know, now you have your own lab, and you're yeah. a very established professor. Did were you aware that that was the career that you wanted when you were an undergrad? I knew I wanted to be faculty probably my first year in college. Um, all of a sudden, it was cool to be smart. I'm just going to say it that way, right? Uh, the Where I went to high school, it was not cool to be smart. <laughs> um, and I went to college and, and you know, I found myself tutoring people and, and it, I loved it. I loved explaining things to others. And, um, and so I loved that environment. And I knew that moment that I wanted to be faculty, I... I had never done, I didn't do science fairs as a high school student. My school was a private school, but a, but a relatively poor school. We had no labs, so I never stepped into a lab until my first year in college. And so I was not thinking I wanted to do research. I didn't know anything about it, right? Um, but I knew I wanted to be faculty. Therefore, I knew I needed a PhD, and therefore, I realized that I needed to do research. And fortunately, in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of opportunity. Even back then, this was in 1993 or four, um, because of investments by the National Science Foundation and, and other programs like NASA, there was a lot of awareness and, and you know, students were introduced to the idea of getting research. And, and so I, it was in my sophomore year that I got my first experience and um, and that really helped out a lot. It was. What were you doing? Yeah, um, I was studying the effect of um, salts ions on the spectroscopic properties of dyes, and um, I basically spent an entire semester making you know solutions using you know volumetric flasks, filling cuvettes, putting the cuvette in the spectrophotometer taking a reading, removing the cuvette, washing the cuvette, making another solution. I don't know how many solutions I made, but that's what that's everything that I did. And then I would give the data to the professor and he would do the analysis. I made sure that every single solution was as accurately prepared as possible and that every cuvette was pristine and that every scan was done properly. And that was that opened it because even though I wasn't interested in the research, right? That's not what I wanted for me. I wanted to do biomedical. It was the opportunity to show people that you that I could do it, right? And so what ends up happening is one door opens another. So that person wrote a letter for me for a summer program at Cornell. So that was my first out-of-state experience. Same thing. I ended up, Cornell was doing th molecular thermodynamics simulations. Again, not something that I was terribly interested in, but it opened another door. I did my best and that person wrote another letter, another letter. And so when I came back to Puerto Rico, I joined that lab that was working on the artificial pancreas. And I think that that's what I tell my students, you know, 
a lot of students want to do research because they want to solve the problems that they're passionate about. And if you're lucky to get an opportunity in a lab that's solving the problems you're passionate about, that's great. But the vast majority of students are not going to get that opportunity. And what they have to see is that this is an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to, to gain a, a mentor and a champion and that, you know, they should take it full advantage of it. So how did MIT happen? Graduate school. So MIT happened, um, I was walking around the student center and there was this thing, a bunch of schools had come in to try to recruit students. And I walked by and, and this guy from MIT who was visiting grabs me by the arm, pulls me aside and talks to me about MIT. And this was Guillermo Amir. Oh, Do you know Guillermo? Yeah. So Guillermo was a PhD student at the time. And so he, he was visiting Puerto Rico. And um, so let me backtrack. Carlos Ramirez went to MIT, by the way. So I knew that, but I didn't see myself going to MIT. He was an anomaly in my mind. But um, Guillermo's from Panama. And so meeting Guillermo and then seeing myself in Guillermo sort of made it click. Yeah, I could do this. And so the, through that, uh, you know, so they encouraged me and I applied to the MIT Summer Research Program, the MSRP. And so I went there. This was 1997, I think. I worked with um, Karen Gleason, did chemical vapor deposition research. Again, not what I wanted to do, but you do, you, you do the best, right? And that summer was awesome. Um, and because of friends made, still friends today, but also because I could see myself there. I, I took advantage of it too, because I, I met several faculty. So I reached out to the graduate coordinator. I said, you know what, some, maybe I would like to come to MIT. So can you put me in contact with faculty here? And that's another thing that I encourage, you know, I, I've run an RU program first in Puerto Rico, now at Florida. And um, I always encourage students to go beyond the lab that they've been matched to. Um, first of all, we're all human, right? And faculty love to talk about their work, right? <laughs> so you're not going to offend anyone if you write and say, hey, would you mind if we meet? I'd love to learn about your work. I'm here for this summer program. And that's what I did. And, and I think that helped a lot because getting into any graduate school program is very competitive. And if you have the opportunity to meet people personally and you leave a good impression, that can only be helpful. It's just a great example of how representation matters a, mm -hmm. a lot. Now that you're on the flip side, yeah. what's it like to be that representative for so many people? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. First of all, that was a very important. That was so. So I started my career in Puerto Rico. Um, after my PhD, I went back to Puerto Rico and I wanted to give back, and I was very happy. And and I moved for many reasons. And and for me, the heartbreaking part of moving was no longer being there. But actually, I, I came to realize that by leaving, I could, I could be a role model and be at places where I had not seen Puerto Rican or Hispanic faculty. And so in Florida, um, I think we have two Hispanic faculty in chemical engineering and two Hispanic faculty in biomedical engineering. And I'm one of those in both, by the way. <laughs> um, and there's about 25% Hispanic students. I get a lot of students reach out to me 
for research opportunities. And it breaks my heart that I can't give opportunities to, to all. But it's been really rewarding. Um, and, and actually, over time, that in Florida is where I started to talk about my career pathway. I don't know that I had done that too much in Puerto Rico, maybe once or twice. But, but then it became more important to sort of share some of these things, some of the things I talked about in, in the seminar today. Which, I mean, your, the output of your trainees has been incredible. I mean, I think you graduated over 30 PhD students. 24. 24. 24. It'll be 30 when the current batch graduates, I think. And <laughs> you had over 100 undergrads that have come through? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've 115 a, or so. Yeah. It's yeah. been a lot. Your, your family tree of trainees is huge. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, undergrads are a big part, right? I Because... I had not done research when I went to college and because these opportunities are what put me in the trajectory to where I am now, because REU programs made such a big impact on me, I've always felt it important that I give back this way, right? So we, we tend to have, you know, at some point we had two to three undergrads per PhD student and that, that can be hard on the PhD students. I try to make it one or two now, depending on where the PhD student is. And, um, and I take students with all levels of experience, students who've never done research, students who are freshmen, students who are seniors, and just realize that they want to do a PhD and they need some experience. Um, and there's turn turnover because of that, right? And I think that contributes to having a lot of, you know, trainees. But also, I mean, I've been faculty for 20 years, right? Um, the It's very rewarding. It's very rewarding. You're, you're a very thoughtful mentor. I mean, how do you approach mentoring undergrads? Ah, I wish I did it better. <laughs> I think like many of us, I think for, you know, for re faculty at research intensive institutions, it's hard to, to give individual attention to every undergrad. Um, I'm there to meet with them ad hoc when they want to meet with me. I try to, to have them come in. I meet with my PhD students every week or every other week. And, and then I, I tell my PhD students to bring their undergrads at least once a month. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't because of schedules. I mean, undergrads have very complex schedules. Um, group meetings, obviously interactions there, some, you know, getting them to talk. But also, you know, I ask my PhD students a lot about how the undergrads are doing. And when I when when through that feedback, we see that there's an issue, I pull the undergrads in and I talk to them. I mean... Ultimately, I, I mean, I tell them a lot of, in the beginning, you know, what we talk a lot about what they're trying to get out and I give them advice. And um, I think, you know, I think most people do that. I mean, I, I hope most people do that. I think from a mentorship perspective, one thing that I've always emphasized to my students is that you only live once, you know, so you, you choose things that make you happy. Um I've had a lot of students, I, I mean, I, I'd like to use this story because it's the most extreme story. I had an undergrad who was phenomenal, um, got into MIT, actually, into the PhD program and, and dropped out in the second year with a master's because his passion was to play basketball. And, you know, he came to me ashamed, you know, he, he felt that he was letting me down. And I was like, what are you talking about, you know? You're great at basketball, and if this makes you happy, this is what you should be doing. And I think that that's something we need to do as mentors. 
we are not in the business of making copies of ourselves. I think that we're in the business of helping students discover who they are and helping them achieve their potential. And, and, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because obviously we, we, many of us love our students, right? We, we, we use, especially PhD students, they spend four or five years in your lab, you get to know them and then most of them leave and, and I, and, I, and I came to the realization that at least for me, and I'm sure for many people, the reason we're often so happy when one of our students chooses to stay in academia is, in my case at least, not because I think that academia is a better job, but because I, it makes me think that I will be able to see them, right? We'll be able to see each other at conferences every year, right? So it's like a family reunion. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so you did 10 years in your first, um, yeah. starting your first lab as a professor at the University of Puerto Rico, and then you came to Florida. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, many reasons. Well, the, 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 the first, the reason to move, moves are hard, right? Moving from one institution to another is very hard. And in my case, I was moving from a primarily undergraduate institution at the time Puerto Rico had IOS had, about, I think, four PhD programs and was graduating less than 10 PhD students a year. So it was not classified as PhD granting yet. Moving to an R1 institution. And, and so I had gone to the point, you know, when I went to Puerto Rico, I, I, never, I never applied anywhere else when I finished my PhD. I applied to postdocs. I got one offer. I, I found myself listening to the PI about you know, talk about the research he wanted me to do. And in my head, I was thinking about the research I wanted to do. And I had an offer from Puerto Rico. And and frankly, I didn't see myself being faculty in the United States at that time. I was 27. There were very few faculty who were Hispanic still, right? But even worse then. And, you know, you, in, imposter syndrome sets in. And, and so I decided, no, I have an offer in Puerto Rico. I'm going to go there. And I didn't, even though I had gone to MIT, right? And if people would think, oh, you know, whatever. You know, I didn't see myself as someone who could be successful at research. So I went to Puerto Rico and little by little started a lab. And got funding and really loved it and loved mentoring. And I got, my lab got to the point where, unfortunately, the environment in Puerto Rico had become limiting. And I'm not going to get into the details, but it was limiting. There was also spousal situations. You know, my wife was getting a PhD and job prospects were an issue. But also, I mean, Puerto Rico has gone through some really rough times over the last decade. And and it was all there. The writing was on the wall. And, and you know, I'm, I, I am somewhat ashamed to say it, but it was clear that things were headed in the wrong direction economically and that that was going to have a significant impact in the island, in the university. I had kids, my kids were toddlers at the time. A lot of medical professionals were leaving the island, right? My daughter had a condition at some point that required a, a pediatric surgeon. And, I, and we found out that there were only two in Puerto Rico. You know, almost 4 million people's, people lived in the island at that time. And the idea that there's only two pediatric surgeons the idea that your daughter may need emergency surgery and no one's willing to do it 
and you have to get on a 48-hour queue for one of the two pediatric surgeons. You know, for us, it was that was that and the sum of all things we needed to leave. Um, so, so that was a push. The pull was to go somewhere where I could do more, right? And where my wife would have opportunity. But it was also difficult. I mean, after 10 years, Puerto Rico's an EPSCOR state or EPSCOR region. I don't know if people know what EPSCOR is, but EPSCOR is a program in many of the funding agencies that, that provides additional funding for jurisdictions that have a very small share of the federal research budget. And it was a minority-serving institution, and there are many programs for minority-serving institutions. And so imposter syndrome sets in again, and I didn't know if I could make it, right? If I leave, will I be able to get funded? Will I be successful? Will students want to work with me? So it was rough, you know, but ultimately uh, we had a great offer from University of Florida and I had never considered the University of Florida. And and I'm really glad because it's been an exciting 10 years now, actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, It's been you, 10 years. You definitely excelled <laughs> and yeah. more. And even more recently now, so you have uh, two appointments in biomedical engineering and, and chemical engineering, and you recently became the chair of the of the chemical engineering department. What's the calculation for you to accept that position? Were there certain things you wanted to accomplish? Yeah. So first of all, yes, I'm jointly appointed. And actually, I was hired by biomedical engineering. And that was an interesting opportunity because I love chemical engineering as a field, and I also love biomedical engineering. Chemical engineering is a very well-developed field. Biomedical, I think, is very dynamic. And so the opportunity in Florida was to join a department that was just getting started in terms of its undergrad program. And what that meant, um, about six months later, we also had our current chair be hired, Christine Schmidt. And so I was, I was able to see how Christine transformed the department through faculty hiring, through changes to the program, and, and taking it to where it is now, which is, you know, really great place, I think, for faculty students to do great research in a very inclusive and supportive environment. During that same time, chemical engineering didn't hire anyone or maybe one faculty. And there was this tremendous growth. There's been tremendous growth at the University of Florida in the last 10 years. And so when the previous chair, Rich Dickinson, stepped down, I was approached and asked, you know, is this something you might want to do? And I was like, no, <laughs> no way. You know, I have a family. I love teaching. I love research. I had done administrative service. I, I was actually serving as associate chair for BME at the time. And then I thought about it and I said, you know, I, I love both disciplines and I've seen all this happen in BME. I want the same to happen for Kemi. And, and I was able to negotiate and, and get university and colleges support. And, and so in long story short, in the time that I've been chair since 2017, uh, we've hired 10 new tenure track assistant professors, four new teaching faculty. We've greatly expanded our ability to offer courses every semester. We've reduced classroom sizes. We've increased um, the breadth of electives, grown the size of the PhD program, increased the stipends. Um, increase the pool of applicants and remodeled thousands of square feet of space. And so I'm doing it. That's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it selfishly so that it's a better place so that I can spend the rest of my career there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you recently uh, changed your name, well, adopted uh, yeah. the original version of your name, and you have a, a really well-written article that you wrote that that's, that people can find on your website. Would you mind to, to recapitulate that? No, I'm, I'm happy to share that. Um, yes, I, I was, my, my full name and, and my birth certificate is Carlos Manuel Rinaldi Ramos. But for about 18 years of my professional career, I've gone by Carlos Rinaldi. And there's many reasons for that. Um, I, I made that change when I published my first paper. I think that's when we think about this thing, right? When we've, when we've published our first paper and we're figuring out what to put in the author byline and, and we think about what people are going to search for, right? Yeah, I added my middle initial. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did it. I was dumb, by the way, because, okay, so basically the story is um, I I looked around and the few Puerto Rican or Hispanic faculty at MIT that I could find, one person, went by only his first last name. Most people that I knew went by their first last name. And I, I will also say that in... In, in typical conversations in Puerto Rico, even though people use two last names, we often refer to each other by one last name. Um, and and, and it, I don't have this, by the way, in the write-up, but another thing that I realized later is that my father didn't use his second last name. But there's actually a story there about you know a rift in the family. He didn't use it on purpose because he did not want to acknowledge that side of the family. But basically, in many Hispanic cultures, Puerto Rico included, people adopt two last names. The first last name comes from the father, and the second last name comes from the mother. That that tends that ends. We end up with long names, right? At the time, I remember in Boston when I was filling out forms. You know, there wasn't enough space for my name, <laughs> and and also people would would see my ID from Puerto Rico and then call me Carlos Ramos and I'm no, it's Carlos Rinaldi or Carlos Rinaldi Ramos, and so you get tired of explaining it to people, and so you, I think, I try to, um, what's the right word? Not assimilate, blend in, right? I it was a con, I think it was a conscious decision to blend in, to not have to go through all these things that now I know are microaggressions, right? This is what we now call microaggressions. These things that we're constantly being exposed to because people don't necessarily understand or 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 because of biases, etc. I just didn't want to deal with it. And so I decided to go with just Carlos Rinaldi. And um, what I didn't realize then is that in doing so, I'm erasing my mother. And she never complained, never brought it up. One story is I did get, you, you mentioned I get the P-Case. I did get the P-Case award. So my P-Case plaque, right, the thing that you get from the president that signed, has my full name. So I think my mom was very happy with that, right? She very promptly framed it. Um, anyway, I never gave it a thought. Um, and then I married my wife, Cynthia. And um, she challenged me on it, but I ignored her. And, and then we... It was too late, right? I had already published 100 papers as Carlos Rinaldi. Why would I change it then? And the pandemic hit. And I think a lot of us had a lot of time on our hands to think. And I did find myself thinking about this. You know, I was also on Twitter. And a lot of these diversity issues are very... I think Twitter can be, if you follow the right people, can be a very powerful or very useful tool to learn about these things. I, I started to become more sensitive 
I also saw it in my wife as she tried to make sure that my kids, our kids, use both last names. And, and that's it. I decided to change it back. And it's not been that hard. I mean, I still have some things where I'm officially Carlos Rinaldi and I still have to change. But um, but it's been good. And and I think it's. I like to share the story because I know that there's other people, not just from Hispanic cultures, but from many other cultures where names, you know, names are important. And, and I think it's good to raise awareness to this. I think for me, the, the next one, by the way, is um, uh, I want to learn phonetic um, spelling. And, and, you know, we at UF, we ask students to submit their phonetic spelling for the graduation so the person can read it correctly. We're asking for it at the wrong time. We should be asking for the phonetic spelling when they join. And, and faculty should get this. And... But it's challenging. I, I have actually tried to find phonetic spelling for names, and it's there's not a lot of useful tools. What would people be surprised to know about you outside of science? Surprised? I don't know. Secret talents? Oh, no. I, <laughs> I, I am a nerd through and through. Um, I play video games. Nice. I scuba dive, oh, or wow. I used to. Um, I haven't gone scuba diving for about a decade, but before that I school I used to scuba dive a lot. I learned as a high school student. I actually spent a summer in college teaching, you know, giving swimming lessons and taking people out to, to scuba dive in Puerto Rico. A bit risky because I was not a certified master diver at the time, and I'm not. I'm no open water. But, you know, it was the 1990s and people played it loose, I think, by then, <laughs> back then. Um, I like playing video games, but I only play, I only get to play around the winter break. Oh. That's the only time. And always, if there's a new Zelda game or a new Metroid game, I'm there. I'm going to, I'll buy a new console just to play that one game. Breath of the Wild. That yeah. Was a great awesome one. game. Yeah. Like, what was it? 150 hours or something? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I usually wrap this up by, uh, by asking, uh, our guests what the last greatest thing that you read or watched was. Oh my God. Ask. my reading is unfortunately very limited to science um so what is the last greatest thing that i watched man i'm blanking here <laughs> well on the fun side right i really enjoyed no way home oh <laughs> i'm a marvel fan i i like science fiction and, and those movies me too but i i want to i want to remember something more <laughs> relevant than that more relevant than spider-man yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, man. I think you have me I struggling. You. <laughs> yeah, you stumped me. That's all good. You know, I'll tell you the fact is that life as a department chair with two kids and a full time working spouse, it's a blur. <laughs> it's been a blur. And with the COVID pandemic, it's been a blur. I hear um, you. Yeah. Well, that, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, it was great to have you here and, and learn about your research. Thanks very thank much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun.